It's really good as we pray that prayer together. I'm gradually over the weeks hearing your voices with more confidence each time in that we can respond together um, and an indication that as we begin to build back that sense of growing together. We're going to hear God's word and we started last week looking at the book of James. James who was the brother of Jesus who grew up with him. James who did not believe in Jesus during those years when Jesus was ministering or didn't believe he was the Messiah at any rate. And then Jesus meeting James sometime after the resurrection. And James going on to be a leader in the church, particularly the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem among the Christians there, known for his great wisdom, his steadfastness to God's word and God's law, but also his bringing together, reconciling what Paul was doing as he brought non-Jews into the church with the Jewish church there in Jerusalem. He was known as a wise counselor, so we look for the wisdom of God that comes through James as we read the first chapter of the book of James. Um, James is, um, as we'll see as we go through it, it's, it's difficult to draw a line. You know, some arguments go from A to B to C and you can see where they're going. James is much more reflective. It comes over us. So let's hear the word of God together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed about by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they pass away like a wild flower for the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, having stood the test. That person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. 
Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all that he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger doesn't produce righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after having looked at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Would whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it will be blessed in all that they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wise teaching. We ask, Lord, even as we have heard it today, that your spirit has already begun to speak to our hearts to challenge us and mold us, to strengthen us, and to make us wise in you. Amen. I, uh, I turned 50, um, oh gosh, six months ago. It doesn't count, though. I'm, I'm quite sure, I'm, lockdown birthdays don't count, do they? I have this theory, so I'm still 49. And I know some of us are two years younger than we started off this. We might feel 10 years older, but that's how it is. But anyway, when I, when I turned 50, my mother gave me, um, it's almost predictable, isn't it? It's what mums do, isn't it? The, she gave me a photo album with a picture from not quite every year, but certainly all the first years that shows me getting bigger and bigger through school days and all the rest of it up till married life and everything else. Um, the good thing is it's in a photo album and it wasn't in a, on a big screen so I can not show it to anybody. But that photo album is, which we probably produced for our own children at some point, our, our, my daughter's 21, I'll just warn her this, this, this year coming, I'll just warn her what we'll do for her. But um, yeah, that photo album that we've all got is a record of growth. It's a reminder that children get bigger and bigger. The first thing you see when you haven't perhaps seen family over a, a number of months and, and you see the children or the grandchildren is, gosh, you've grown. As if that's a surprise. 
because that's what children are supposed to do, isn't it? They're supposed to grow, and there's always a record of their growth, their, their increase in, in, in physical strength, but also their, their educational learning as it grows and develops. But I wonder if God our Father were to give us a spiritual photo album, what it would look like. A picture of the first day that we began to know the Lord and walk with Him, whatever age that was, perhaps for some of us just in our youth. And the years after that, as we've grown with Him. Would it be an album of increasing spiritual maturity or would it be an album where we had got stuck somewhere where we still had the baby face 40 50 years later because our maturity had got stuck we talked about this last week a little bit about the christian life being in one sense a once for all thing for christ died for us and we are his and that that's like birth it's it, it in fact the bible describes it, it's being born again it, it, it is that life that's once for all but in another sense of the work of the Holy Spirit within us from that point that begins to change us, that begins to transform us, that begins to challenge our sinful nature, that begins to form us, that we become more and more like Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those famously are, are, are the fruits of the Spirit. But I'm always struck when I, when I read that is we think, oh, those are the great characters that Christians should have, but they're fruits. And what are fruits? They're, they're products of something that is alive, that is growing, that is changing, that is developing. And that is the way that we are to be as well. But the garden needs tended. The Lord will bring the growth. The sun will shine. He will do it by His Spirit. But the garden needs tended. And quite a lot of Scripture is simply about that, reflecting on what God wants and allowing by His Spirit and His Word our garden to be tended. And certainly the book of James is in that level. James, the brother of Jesus. James, who taught so much. But James, who was very clearly saying, yes, there is the saving faith that has been proclaimed that even the Gentiles are coming to believe because of what Jesus has done. But there is also God's Word, and God's Word that is to shape how His people live. And so here is a book that we read together that is steeped in the Old Testament, steeped particularly in the wisdom tradition, the book of Proverbs, the book of Psalms, that reflection on how we should live, but is also, as you read it, steeped in the words of Jesus, which isn't very surprising because I imagine Jesus' words are something that James was so familiar with as his brother growing up with him, how Jesus taught the Old Testament. Now, there is absolutely masses in chapter one. I, I had this dilemma as I, as I planned to preach. Would we would look at chunks of chapter one or would we take it verse by verse? Because there is so much depth here. But there is a sense in chapter one that we can skip over some of it because it's almost an introduction. Some of the themes that are just picked up in a verse as we went through that will be developed in the chapters that follow. So I want to start this morning with the last verse. The last verse of this chapter. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, 
to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There is a summary that James gives of what it is that we should be growing towards, both as individuals, but we might also say as a people together. This is the culture that our church should develop as we are becoming more and more like Jesus. There's two elements to to what God wants that we see here. One is looking after orphans and widows in the distress, and the other bit is keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, let's just look at both of those. That first expression, looking after widows and orphans, could be lifted from, oh, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen passages from the Old Testament. The very clear call to God's people through the law and the prophets right from the start, that those who are most vulnerable in society, that those who follow God and those who love Him will love them, will care for them, will protect them, for that is God's own heart. God cares about the poor. Particularly when we come to the prophets, as the prophets rebuke Israel, as the prophets call Israel to love God with their whole heart, they will look at all that they're doing in their religion and their sacrifice and their temples, and they will say to them that true devotion to God, that sham religion is shown up by this. What does it do? What's the heart of what you're doing? Are you caring for those that are most vulnerable? The expression to look after orphans and widows is, is a deep one. It's not just calling us to you know, give a food parcel or a bit of money to, to some charity. Rather, it's to be an advocate for justice, to make sure the voices of the vulnerable are heard, to put them at the center of our life as a church and our ministry to the world. That's why, to take some of the contemporary themes, We can't brush over when people are shouting in our society, black lives matter. We need to be at the forefront of saying, well, our whole Bible tells us that those groups that are feeling excluded, that those groups that are feeling there's an injustice and there is an injustice, those are where we are about. It's why the church needs to be at the forefront as it was from the beginning of ensuring that there is gender justice, that, there are, that the women and men are valued. It's why we, we transcend all the barriers and the, the, the divisions that there are in our society where we see there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither rich nor poor. James was right at the forefront of that, for Christ is what it is all about. So social justice, a change of society at the heart of what we are about, how we live, but also to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's a call to our lives to grow in personal integrity. Not to be people that are caught up in greed and acquisition and property. Not to be people that are factional and quarreling and protesting about what I have to get in my sense of personal injustice. And not to be people that are steeped in the sexual mores, the sexual immorality of the world around us. And again, we find this in the prophetic critique. Those same prophets that protested about social justice were also concerned about the moral life of God's people, that they were not committing adultery, 
that they were keeping sex within marriage, that they had an integrity in the way that they spoke and that they lived. These things came together. It's interesting, in our day, we've often divided them. You, you, you get more liberal churches where you'll go and the, the care for the poor and social justice is, is at the heart of everything they say, but perhaps on morality, it's like, well, don't judge anybody, just let everybody do what they want. And you'll go to other churches where they will really stress holiness and purity and, and living rightly by God's Word, and particularly in, in matters of relationships, but they'll just be paying lip service to social justice and to a care for the poor. The Bible, in its wisdom, always brings those things together. And it's interesting that in the early centuries of the church, when it was still being persecuted by the Roman authorities, the two things that were noticed about the Christians were one, that here was a group of people that were poor and cared for the poor in a way that shocked the Romans. In fact, one of the pagan Roman emperors, Julian the Apostate, said, it is disgraceful that while no Jew ever has to beg, these blasphemous Christians support not their, only their own poor, but ours as well. Oh. There we are. My phone has just begun to give me information on the Emperor Julian. These things are too bright, aren't they? But it's interesting that the early church was noted both for the way that they lived a different life, that their family life, that their, the, the, the way they treated uh, men and women and sex and all these things was, was completely countercultural, but also their compassion and their care for the poor, and that is at the heart of what we are doing. How do we get to grow, to live lives that are shockingly countercultural on those two things, that have the personal integrity, but also have that place of compassion and care. Well, James is quite clear. We do it by listening to the Word of God. Listening to the Word of God. And not just listening to the Word of God, but letting it seep deep within us. He gave birth to us through the word of truth, he says in verse 18, that we might be a kind of first fruits, that we might be shaped by this word. Verse 22, James says this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. See, here is something very important. We are supposed to read God's Word and reflect on it as Christians, and we're to do that not just so we can win a Bible quiz. Anyone any good at Bible quizzes? I used to hate them because I always come last, and folk think I should know better. But that's not the purpose of reading the Bible, that we might know it backwards, that we might know who Moses' father-in-law was or anything like that that we get quizzed on. Rather, the reflection is that we are changed and transformed by it, that the Bible begins to change me. That takes us back to, to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, which said that we meditate on God's law day and night. The idea is that as, we, as we're thinking about how we live, about how we act, about what we do, we're all the time reflecting on God's Word. We're letting it change us and transform us. It's steeping into us. It begins to change that we think about what's important. It begins to change how we think about ourselves and who we are. We begin to grow those roots those wise roots of wisdom. And this is deep 
in the tradition of the Old Testament, we find particularly in the book of Psalms and Proverbs, it's not so much about learning what's right and wrong and, and working out what the Christian answer to everything is, so much as steeping ourselves in it. Till instinctively, whenever we're faced with any choice in life, we are thinking about what does God want from me? I love the psalm that says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I've hidden your words, says the psalmist, deep in my heart that I might not sin against you. That goes for old men too and old women. And for all of us, that sense. But James goes on here, don't just look at it, do what it says. And then he goes on to use this wonderful illustration of a man who looks at the word like someone who looks in a mirror and walks away. You know, when we look in a mirror, the question we're asking is not just, is that nice, is it? We're asking, what does that say about me? And then the point of looking in a mirror isn't just that I go away thinking, oh, I'm great or I'm ugly, is it? It's normally when you look in a mirror, so you can do something, you can straighten the tie, you can fix the hair, you can make sure you've shaved properly or, or whatever else it is. The point of coming to God's word is that it begins to transform us. It begins to allow us to be improved. And James goes on to say, whoever looks intently, verse 25, into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, they will be blessed. They will be happy in all they do. But look at that just for a moment. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Now, this is where our modern society <laughs> has a problem because we don't think of laws as giving freedom, do we? The law restricts me. I want to drive 90 on the road and the law says 70. I want to sing in church and the law says, no, you can't. I want to, and we, we know particularly in this day what it means to live under the restrictions of the law. We instinctively look at the law and say, that doesn't bring freedom at all. That limits my choices. In fact, our modern society is that we actually want rid of all restrictions. People should be able to choose to do and be whatever they want without any restrictions at all. Restrictions are bad. And what does religion come and do? It comes and puts a whole lot of rules. We don't want any rules. We want to live as we have, and then we will be free. And the Bible seems to limit us in all sorts of ways. But here's the problem. You see, our modern society assumes that true freedom is found in the absence of all restrictions. The Bible says something different. It actually says this. It says, look, you are actually, when you think you're free, you're enslaved by all sorts of things. This passage will talk about the desires that drive you the pressures that drive you, the things that don't seem to limit you. You see, you want to do all these things. Why do you want to do them? What is it that's compelling you, that's restricting you, that you can't live the way that brings happiness? You have to drive after all these things. And the Bible is very clear. What true freedom is, is not the freedom to do anything I want. It's the freedom to be able to live in the way that I am designed to live that brings happiness and contentment. Tim Keller, when I was reading what he had to say on this passage, had a great illustration. He said, consider a fish. A 
fish is made in a particular way, isn't it? It's got gills so that it can breathe in, I'm going to get the technical bits all wrong, but it can basically breathe in the water and make oxygen and live in, in water. And it has fins so that it can move around and swim and dart and do all those things in water. Now, would you say that the fish might say, well, I should have a choice in life. I should be able to choose whether I live in water or on the land. I shouldn't be restricted by someone putting me in the sea and saying I have to live there. I should have the freedom to do that. Well, a fish can exercise freedom, but if the fish decides it actually would rather be on the pavement, it's going to find its freedom ain't much good to it, isn't it? True freedom isn't about the absence of restrictions. It's about being able to be where we're supposed to be and flourish and be blessed. When the fish is in the water, it's not restricted at all. Actually, it is free to swim and live and breathe and flourish. And that's what God's Word is supposed to do for us. God's Word, we believe, is not a set of religious rules that Moses came up with just so that we'd all follow the cult and do what we're told. It's the manual. It's the owner's manual. It's the God who made us and loved us and knows all the things that we're capable of. And that owner gave us his Word to reflect on, to live, to get the best out of who we are. Not restrictive at all. You know, if you get a a, a manual with your car, you don't sort of look at it and think, gosh, that's restrictive. This says I have to put oil in the car. Maybe I want to put Coca-Cola in the car. You know, I want to be free. Well, if you, if you do that, you won't get the best out of it. And it's not because you'll sort of say, well, there's a miserable owner that said I can't put Coca-Cola in my car. I've got to put oil in the car. Not at all. But rather, you'll discover that what is commended in that owner's manual is the best. And men, listen to that, because see when you go to put something together, who's the one that pushes the instructions to the side and says, I won't read them? We put up a tent the other day, and of course, I'm bashing ahead, and the wise, the, the, my wise wife is saying, let's read <laughs> the instructions. It'll work much better, and it did. God's perfect law brings freedom because it is how we are meant to be. God's perfect word. And of course, Scripture tells us that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you want to see what it is to live and to flourish and to be all we're created to be, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus in His loving. Look at Jesus in His purity and His holiness. This is what we are designed to be like. And Jesus was the freest person that has ever lived on this earth. Where's the proof of all this? Well, it's interesting because James began this chapter by saying this, the proof of this type of living is when the difficulties come, when the trials arrive. Because a person that is deeply into God's Word, a person whose heart is for God's priorities, a person who is trusting in Him who will remake and create this whole world, that person will not easily be shaken. They will find that when everything else that they'd hoped for and they tried to build is shaken around them, that they will stand with endurance. See, here's the thought. 
There's lots of good things in life, the good gifts that come from God. James says that in this chapter. The problem is if we've not followed the owner's instructions, those things become what it's all about. The relationships, the enjoyment, the holidays, the career, the success, all these things, which are not bad things, but they become the ultimate thing. And the problem is, if they are your ultimate thing, if they are taken from you, you've got nothing. And you simply, simply collapse in despair. James started this bit by saying, consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds. Notice not if, but when. Every human being will face difficulties and trials. And the word that's used here for the testing of your faith in verse 3 is, is a furnace. It's the idea of, of, of some ore being put into a furnace to test it. And what that, that heat does is it burns up all the impurities, all the things that don't matter, all the, the, the stuff that needs to oxidize. And so you see what's at the core, what's at the heart, the precious metal. You know, when people go through suffering, they can come out in different ways. And we know this, don't we? Some people come out and they're beautiful. There's something about them that just glows. They've got a new compassion. They've got a new understanding. They know what's important. They've got a new sense of priorities. And there's other people that come out broken and angry and bitter and despairing. Now, James is not saying that suffering is a joy. In fact, he's quite clear that you've got to look for this. You've got to look for this. Suffering is awful. Jesus wept when things went wrong when people died. But wisdom is knowing what matters. It's being, to go back to Psalm 1, the person that's like a tree. The roots are deep. Therefore, when things happen, we don't blow away like chaff. Our world, our culture doesn't prepare as well for suffering because what it says to us is that your life should go fine, it should go well, and if it doesn't, it's somebody's fault, doesn't it? That's why people's first reaction when things go wrong is, who can I sue? Who can I blame? We go on social media and we post what's, what's wrong, it's the government's fault, it's their fault, it's somebody else's fault. It, it, it's anger, 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 and that anger does so, so little. Look for something deeper, says James. Know where your roots are. Know what's important. Because when our first love is the Lord who we will never lose, when our first loyalty is to Him who created us and who will give us a hope and a future in Jesus Christ, then we face the world very differently. Then we begin to grow and mature until we come near the perfection how do you cope with suffering and trials? James is quite clear. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask for God. The point really is, again, that we come to God's word, to his wisdom, and we begin to reflect on what it is that's all so important. And behind all of that, of course, is Jesus Christ himself, who both saves us and gives us a hope 
but also shapes us and shows us how we might live. Amen.